from the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. little voices that we just heard running downstairs, and I ask your hand of favor upon them as they teach and learn and think. And Lord, we ask you to do the same for us. Would you put your hand upon our time together? Lord, let hope be given to those who need hope. And Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you as the sovereign Lord of this time and this space. This is your building we are your people, we are gathered in your name, and we pray that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come as we think about these words. And Father, we ask that the help of your Holy Spirit would given us to, be given to us to understand what has been read. <clears throat> I pray for help in speaking rightly and truly. And Lord, we would ask that in all of these things, our hearts would be uh, amazed by the love of the Father for the Son, that our minds would be attracted to this incredible picture of the servant whom you have chosen and anointed, that we would be immensely grateful that this servant is a gentle and merciful and meek servant. And Lord, Matthew's convinced that this is a description of Jesus. And Lord, I, I pray you'd let us see you in this scripture Lord Jesus, let us see your glory this morning, and I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Grant faith, Lord Jesus, to those in this room and listening to my voice who need faith, and grant encouragement to those who are discouragement or discouraged, and I pray for the, the faith to believe what is hard to see and understand, but Lord, by your Spirit, pour life into us and courage into your children. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So our, our text this morning makes a connection between the words of uh, Jesus, the actions of Jesus with the words of Isaiah and the actions of Isaiah and what Isaiah has written uh, long ago. And so this really uh, takes us back to asking a question of what Isaiah wrote, Jesus fulfilled. Um, that's what we're, we're going to see. And by the end, I hope that you'll have about 10 reasons to hope in Jesus, um, the connection of what we see in this passage of Scripture. So uh, you realize we pick up this story in um, midstream. There's a lot that is happening, and we, we started off, uh, if you heard Ben reading, Jesus aware of this is the first word, um, and yet something's happened beforehand. Jesus, there's something that led us here, and so quickly, just to go back and remind ourselves of what we have seen in the previous paragraph, 
Uh, Jesus has done some things which has infuriated the Pharisees. He has claimed some things that have made them incredibly angry to the point that they began plotting his murder, which we've never seen before in Matthew's gospel. And so just to be reminded, Jesus has claimed that he knows better the heart of God than do the Pharisees. He has also claimed to be a more accurate biblical interpreter than the Pharisees, which is part of the reason they have been infuriated by him. He has said that he was greater than the temple, the temple where the sacrifices were offered, where atonement was made. Jesus said he's greater than the temple. It's incredible words. He also took for himself the title of the son of man in this previous paragraph, but, but to tip it all off on the Sabbath, he healed a man whose hand was dried up and useless uh, on the Sabbath, and he said it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he healed this man in direct opposition to what the Pharisees understood to be appropriate conduct for the Sabbath. And this resulted in the people praising him and the Pharisees plotting his murder. If you look at verse 14, and I, I do invite you, if you have your Bible open, stay with me in Matthew chapter 12. We're in, in verse 14 to just look at the response to this miracle of healing a man on the Sabbath was that the Pharisees went out and they conspired to destroy Jesus. Now, Matthew does not tell us who was involved in the conspiracy, but Mark does. And Mark says that the Pharisees went out and conspired with the Herodians. They were in favor of Herod's kingship and all of the rule of, of his dynasty. And so they are conspiring together because Jesus is looking really popular. And so this, this potential political leader here, they want to do something about. And so the Pharisees, the Herodians are conspiring together in order to kill Jesus. And so this next paragraph then explains Jesus's response to this knowledge. Jesus learns of this conspiracy and he does something. He does two things that we're going to see. And Matthew then wants us to understand Jesus, what he's doing, and, and, and what, what, he's, what he's not doing. And so we'll see um, his response. So look at verse 15 to 16 with me. So that's the this. Jesus, aware of this, meaning the conspiracy against him to end his life, he's aware of this. He withdrew from there. Verse 15. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. Now, so Jesus is aware of the conspiracy and his response is to withdraw. He, he steps back. He moves away. Uh, we don't know. Mark, Matthew doesn't tell us where he goes, but Mark does. Mark says he goes to the Sea of Galilee. And so, interesting. Jesus just put the Pharisees to shame on the Sabbath day, and he withdraws. He just demonstrated his power in front of all of God's people, and he withdraws. He's got the upper hand, and he withdraws. And he, he's got some momentum going. He just said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and he withdraws. And if, if you're uh, one of those people who are like, come on, Jesus, let's, let's get with it. Let's get busy. You're, you're moving. Things are looking good, so keep it going. Why withdraw? That's one question that sort of comes to our mind. And many followed him. So he withdraws, but many follow. And the many 
Uh, we're not told who the many are. But again, Mark helps us. He, he adds a little flavor to this. Mark chapter 3 tells us that the crowd, this many, the, there was a giant crowd who followed him to Galilee. They were from Galilee. They were from Judea, Jerusalem. He says this in Mark chapter 3, verse 7. And from Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from Tyre and Sidon. So do you need a map? Matthew often will help us to get a geographic lay of the land. So Jesus is ministering in the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and then people as far north as Sidon and Tyre, you see those two coastal cities, those are Gentile areas. So Gentiles have begun to follow Jesus, and there's crowds of them, as well as Idumea, which is south of Decapolis. So then region all around the Sea of Galilee, but there are Gentiles from the north and the south who are following Jesus. They're all a part of this incredible crowd. And so this is likely in the first year of Jesus's ministry. And so it's the beginning and the crowds are are following. The movement is coming. The, The flow is happening. News is spreading. Miracles are happening. In fact, look, Jesus healed them all, we're told. Everybody who followed Jesus, he healed them all. We've been told this before in Matthew's gospel. Jesus heals every affliction and every disease, pointing to the fact there's nobody more powerful than him. He's an incredible person. Every affliction, every disease who comes to him, he is healing them. So the Pharisees' opposition, even though Jesus is withdrawing from downtown, moving out to the sea, it does not stop him from healing. He continues to heal people. But, so the first, the first anomaly in this story is, why does he withdraw? That's the first question. And you're, when you read scripture, ask questions, right? Read with a pen and paper in your hand and ask, what, what is going on? That's studying God's word is be actively involved. Ask questions of the text. So why, Jesus, do you withdraw is the first question. Secondly, then he heals every, all of them. He heals them all. In verse 16, he orders them not to make him known. And again, you think, why, Jesus? I mean, don't you want people to be healed? Don't you want the news to get out? Why not broadcast? Isn't this the good news that we're supposed to share? That you can heal disease and take care of problems? And and Jesus has done this before. This is not the first time he he has told them, don't make him known. In fact, he, um, when he healed a man of leprosy back in chapter 8, he said, see that you tell no one, but just go to the priest and show him. Don't say anything to anybody, just go to the priest. I mean, if you're a guy who's been healed of leprosy, and you've been struggling all your life with a chronic disease, <laughs> can you keep quiet? And yet Jesus says, just, just relax, just go show the priest. And then when also he heals the two blind men in chapter 9, he says to them, see that no one knows about this. Why, Jesus? Why are you telling people not to make you known? So this is the question. Why are you withdrawing when things are going so well? Move forward. Move on. And why are you saying to people whom you have healed not to tell anyone? So when you read the Bible and you're, you're stumped, um, it can cause you to just stop reading. When, when you're studying God's Word and you come across something like this, I don't get it. I don't know what to do. Well, Matthew knows that. And so Matthew is going to answer your questions. Why did Jesus withdraw? And why was he telling people to be quiet about the miracles that he was doing? 
And what Matthew does, so he's writing Jesus' story as he's recording this gospel, all of the events of Jesus' life, and he comes to this point where he's illustrating what Jesus has done of withdrawing and staying quiet, and he knows his readers are going to be confused. And I believe, helped by the Holy Spirit, we're told in writing Scripture, the Holy Spirit brings to mind a passage in Isaiah, chapter 42, as a matter of fact, and then Matthew says, look at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And the question is, what does the this refer to? I think it refers both to Jesus' withdrawal. Why is he withdrawn when things are going so well? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Keep moving forward. He withdraws. And secondly, that why do you keep quiet? So both of those, because Jesus is fulfilling. So the withdrawing is part of fulfillment. The keep it quiet is part of fulfilling God's law. Jesus is not confused. Sometimes we think, what was he was everything was going great, he's moving forward, and yet he withdraws. Maybe he was wrong. Maybe he's confused about who he is or what he's supposed to do. Matthew wants you to know he's not confused. He's on a plan of fulfillment. Jesus' strange behavior has been spoken of beforehand, and so this is a part of God's plan. And he goes back to Isaiah. Interesting. Isaiah is one of those guys who are a major prophet in the Old Testament. It's, it's kind of hard to pin down the dates of when Isaiah lived, but he, his call to ministry began uh, in about 740 B.C. because we're told in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, that in the year that King Uzziah died, that's when Matthew, I mean, when um, Isaiah was called to ministry. And he lived until the death of, of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, which happened in about 681 B.C. So we're talking 700 years in the past is the time of Isaiah. Uh, we don't uh, know much about Isaiah, um, but there is a story uh, in extra-biblical uh, material that points to his death um, under Manasseh, who was, uh, for most of his reign, a very wicked king. And we're told that Manasseh um, had him cut in two, sawn in half. So you'll often see Isaiah depicted, as you do here, with a saw in his hand. And it could be that in Hebrews chapter 11, 37, which points to some of the men of old who were uh, sawn in two, that this could be Isaiah to whom he is, is pointing in the history of the church. But Isaiah's, the point is 700 years he lived before the birth of Jesus, and he's written something that Matthew says Jesus is fulfilling. Now, you need to know, uh, Amos chapter 3, verse 7 tells us, God never reveals anything that he's about to do unless he does it first, reveals it first to the prophets who can talk about it, write it down, so that when it happens, you know it's God. God is the only person who can accurately predict and execute what he does uh, predict in the, in the past what he's going to do in the future and then precisely do it. God has the power to accurately say what his plans are. And so he reveals to his prophets what he's going to do in order to grant certainty to his people. So the question is, this passage that Matthew is writing for you, he's writing it so you can be certain that Jesus truly is the Savior. He's writing to shore up your faith, to say, do you believe? Are you going to base your life 
on the claim that Jesus is God's Messiah, and Matthew's giving you evidence written 700 years before the arrival of Jesus to see, does he fulfill this? So he's going to take us back into the Old Testament. And we, the challenge is to let Scripture tell us who the Messiah is, not for us in our minds to tell God who we think Messiah ought to be. Because the Jews did a little bit of that, and it was to their destruction. They thought, Messiah, the deliverer, the, the guy who's on a mission, he's the Lord who's charging forward. He's a great leader. He's a military deliverer. That's what they thought Messiah was going to be. And, and Matthew is going to point to you, Messiah, he's, he's complex. He, he's not just one-sided. There's more to him that needs to be seen. So writing 700 years in advance, Matthew is now going to quote Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. So look with me at verse 18. Matthew is going to, what he's going to do is look at the Old Testament a description of the servant. Now in, in this, from Isaiah 42 to about 53, they're called the servant songs, which describe God's chosen deliverer, his anointed Messiah. And, and, and Matthew begins with chapter 42 in quoting here, but he's painting a picture of who the Messiah is. And one question I want to invite you to ask as we read this. Does anybody look like this other than Jesus? Does anybody in the history of the world even come close to fulfilling the description of Messiah written by Isaiah in 700-ish B.C.? Anybody? Anybody even fulfill half of this description? That's what we have to wrestle with. So verse 18, and he's quoting God. So God is now saying to Isaiah what we're about to read. And so Matthew here, and you'll also notice, um, as Matthew, if you go back and you compare Isaiah 42 with Matthew, uh, this portion of Scripture, you'll notice some slight differences between the words that Matthew chooses. Don't stumble over that. We have standards of, well, if it's not verbatim, then it's not accurate. Um, Jews held to it. If you can rightly portray the idea of the author, you don't have to exactly use every single word that was used. So Matthew is interpreting what he understands of the Messiah, probably from memory, most likely. And so here we have this description, but you'll notice some different words. And so he says, verse 18, here's the first part of the description. You'll see a, a, a beloved servant who is... Spirit anointed and a preacher. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So the first part of the description of the servant, and we're asking the question, does this look like Jesus? That's, that's, that's what's in the background. So Matthew, first word, behold. You know what that means. We've seen it again and again. Get your attention. Look, listen, pay attention. Don't fall asleep. Wake up. That's what behold means. And then he says, my servant whom I have chosen. Now, Matthew uses a different word here. The word Matthew chooses to use for servant can be translated as servant or as son. The Hebrew word in Isaiah 42 only means servant. But Matthew is using creative language to force us to think about the identity of the servant. So he says, this Savior Son, this the servant whom I have chosen. So Jesus, we are told from Scripture, is both. He is both the servant of God, but
but also he is the son of God. We saw that from the very beginning of Matthew. And he is chosen for a particular purpose in order to accomplish God's redemptive will. We're told this about three times in Isaiah, that the servant is chosen in order to accomplish God's saving will. Secondly, he says, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. This is God talking about his servant son. So notice the very intimate and loving language. Because there exists a kind of love between father and son that exists nowhere on the planet. Nowhere in the world. And yet love is particularly supposed to give us a pointer and a hint to this. So part, love between husband and wife. Right? Marriage, the covenant of marriage, is intended to be a visual manifestation of the representation of love that exists between Christ and his church. So this love is intended to be seen. And so look at this. Here's God saying, my servant whom I have chosen, my, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. So question, is that does Jesus meet this kind of standard? And you'll maybe you remember on two occasions we are told God the Father spoke audibly from heaven over Jesus and said these very words. First time it happened at his baptism. My beloved son in whom I am well pleased or in whom I delight. The second time was at his transfiguration. God the Father shouting from heaven saying to the earth, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I love him. It's like God can't keep quiet about Jesus. He loves him so much. And so here, yes, Jesus has, he's the one over whom God spoke these words. And then again, we see the servant. I will put my spirit upon him. So God promises to anoint the servant with the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to be uniquely expressed of his chosen role. Do you remember what happened at Jesus' baptism? Right? We are told the Spirit of God descended like a dove and it remained on who? John? John the Baptist? Jesus. Jesus alone has the abiding presence of God's Holy Spirit. So his anointing is on him. And John said, this was the number one sign by which God had said to him, you'll know my Messiah when you see that the Spirit descend on him and remain on him. And that's exactly what happened at Jesus' baptism. So here again, Jesus is fulfilling what was spoken by Isaiah. And the next thing we say, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So Jesus, the servant of Isaiah, is going to be a proclaimer. He's going to be a preacher, a preacher to the Gentiles. And amazingly, um, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus began his public ministry, we find him uh, in the synagogue. He opens up the scroll of Isaiah. He chooses the place to read, and he opens it up to Isaiah 61, and he reads this. This is found in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And again, another connection. He's anointed me to proclaim, there it is, good news to the poor, and sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and liberty to those who are oppressed. Jesus read that passage of Scripture. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He went and he sat down, and everybody stared at him. And then he said, Today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
Jesus claimed to have fulfilled that anointing and that calling to proclamation. And that's exactly what Jesus did. From that day forward, he began preaching and proclaiming the goodness of the kingdom of God. And when he explained his purpose early in his ministry in Mark chapter 1, he said, after healing people all night and preaching to them in the synagogue, early in the morning he got up, he went out to pray, and the disciples went to find him and they said, Jesus, what are you doing? He said, it's time to move on to the next town. For I need to preach there also, and this is why I have come out. Meaning, this is my ministry, this is my calling. It is a ministry of preaching and teaching. So Isaiah's servant is going to proclaim the gospel and we find that that's exactly what Jesus is doing. To whom? Who's he going to be preaching justice to, right? It's, it's to the Gentiles, proclaiming God's goodness of right to the Gentiles. And from the beginning of Matthew, Jesus has highlighted his ministry to Gentiles. So, for example, Matthew includes in, in Jesus' genealogy the fact that there was a Gentile woman, Rahab who was one of the people to whom lived in the land as the people entered the promised land. She was a Gentile. Uh, Matthew also pointed out uh, the worship of a Gentile uh, wise man, right, who came to Jesus' birth. The wise men were Gentiles. They were not Jews. He's highlighting a ministry to Gentiles. Matthew also explains that Jesus' choice of Capernaum in the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee as the place for his ministry, he quotes an Old Testament passage that says, Galilee of the Gentiles which refers to the, the fact that Gentiles live in this region. And so Jesus is reaching out and ministering to Gentiles. And then he notes, above all, a centurion who believed that Jesus could heal. And he said, you don't even have to come to my house to say the word and the, my servant will be healed. And Jesus said about that man who's a Gentile, I haven't found faith like this in anybody in Israel. So Matthew is concerned to highlight the fact that Gentiles are included in the ministry of the servant. And we see that that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And then next, in verse 19, there's another description, not a positive one, but what Jesus, what the servant won't do. Look at verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This gets at the reason for why Jesus withdrew. He's not going to be an arguer. He's not going to engage the Pharisees in a public debate. It's time to withdraw. So he, he's fulfilling this prophecy by withdrawing from the Pharisees. Now, there will come a time for public debate. That'll come later. But this is not the day in Jesus' ministry. In the progression of his ministry, it's not the time. And so it explains why he withdrew from them. He's not going to argue. He's not going to quarrel. And the word can mean debate or in wrangle or engage in strife. He's not going to fire things up with his words, which is what some of us do, don't we? We love to get in fiery arguments. And, and here, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he simply withdraws. He's not going to argue or dispute. This is not a time for him to, to mount a campaign on Instagram to tell he's the Lord of the Sabbath and what he's up to, he simply withdraws. So no public debate. And you know, Jesus did this. When he was often pressed early in his ministry, when people attacked him, he did withdraw. When he at Nazareth, when he read the passage I quoted a few minutes ago, they became so angry at him, they wanted to kill him. And he just left town. 
He didn't fight. He didn't argue. He didn't debate with them. He just left town. He withdrew. So Jesus does this. When opposition is intense and it's not his hour, it's not the right time, he withdraws. The next phrase, no one will hear his voice in the streets. I think this refers to the reason for why Jesus was saying, keep it quiet about the miracles. It certainly does not mean that it's a ministry of silence because we were just told that the servant has a ministry of proclamation. So something different is meant here. So he is saying, I'm not going to, it's not going to be shouting in the streets all of the wonder and the miracles of what Jesus has done. So he commands those he's healed to be silent, to keep it down. No publicity campaign. This is just, it's not a, a, a time for an increased media awareness. Let's, let's keep it down because opposition increases the more his popularity increases. And so there's a certain time to God's sovereign revealing of the servant Messiah and Jesus is following this. So that's, that's why he's withdrawn. He's not going to argue with the Pharisees, debate in the streets. And he's telling those whom he has healed to keep it quiet because he doesn't want too much opposition. And so he's fulfilling here these particular sentences. Looks like to me. And so next, look at who Jesus is. Now, the question, when you think of Jesus, what do you think of? Uh, he's got multiple characteristics, but I wonder what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Jesus. Because here we have this description of the servant, and does it fit our description in, in our minds of who Jesus is? Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. A bruised reed he will not break. You know what a reed is? A reed is, is made from... Uh, stalks of, of grass that grow in marshy areas or along rivers. It's a thin piece of wood or a, a, a very fine uh, and small straw-like wooden uh, substance which is can used to make a pen out of or a measuring rod or a reed like in a flute for a musical instrument. Um, they're very easily made. They are found in great abundance. And when they're broken, because they're so easy to find and replace, he just throws them away. Right? It's like, you ever get one of those big fat straws at Dunkin' Donuts and you break it, you bend it in half and it cracks and you get half of your drink gone and you realize, I what, why is this not working? Right? What do you do with that straw when that happens? Throw it away. You go get another one, right? Because it's got a hole in it. It's got a split. It's easy to be replaced. That's, that's a reed. You just toss it. You don't repair it. You don't get duct tape out and tape up your straw. And yet here, what we are seeing about Jesus, he does not cast aside a bruised reed. He's the kind of Savior who takes bruised people and he's patient with them. He doesn't simply, he's not a leader who runs over the people who are around him who are high maintenance or spiritually wounded. He's not that kind of leader. And that's the kind of leaders we sometimes look to, don't we? We want to take charge people who are going to get it done and move this bus forward. And if you're not on the bus, you're either going to get off or get run over. Right? We've, we've seen this in leadership. You know, Jesus is on a different bus. He is on a bus that cares about the, the needs of his people. And so he is not the kind of Savior who casts away broken or bruised people. 
So if you're broken or you're bruised this morning, you're spiritually wounded, you need help. This Savior that Isaiah is describing is the kind of person that you want to go to. And the question is, does that describe Jesus? Is, is, do you see anything in his life that would point to him being that kind of guy? What about his treatment of Thomas? Right? We all know doubting Thomas. Is Jesus the kind of leader who's like, Thomas, you need to make up your mind. Are you with me or not? Because to be honest, I don't think this is working out. I think, I think we're going to move on. Is that, is that what Jesus did to Thomas? Or did he say, Thomas, look, touch me. Here, put your hand in my side. It's me. Or, or what about Peter? Peter. Peter. Could you imagine the conversation of the leader, the take charge leader? Peter, you denied me. Insubordination is not tolerated in this organization. Uh, you have, you even publicly promised you're loyal to me, and then you denied me publicly. You know, Peter, you've, you've crossed a line here. So I think it's better for you to move on. That is, that is not what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know what? Upon you, I'm going to build my church. And the confession that you have given, I'm going to use you, Peter. And when you have been converted, when you've been changed, when your heart has been turned around, you're going to strengthen your brothers. That, that's Jesus. He, he kind of looks like this servant, don't you think? And next, a smoldering wick he will not quench. A smoldering wick he will not quench. When your faith is about to go out, who are you going to go to? A take charge leader who gets it done? Or somebody who can weep with you? And, and someone who cares about you? And the, the thing that comes to my mind is, do you remember the story of the lady who was for, I think, 12 years humped over? She had been bound by Satan. Do you remember that story? And she's walking around like this for 12 years, and, and the disciples are, you know, Jesus is kind of busy. Can we just move on? And he says, don't you think it's right to deliver this lady, a daughter of Israel who has been bound by Satan? And he sets her free. <laughs> Jesus sets her free. He delivers her from the bondage of the enemy. And I know there are people in this room who need to be delivered from a kind of bondage from the enemy. Whether you're a believer or you're not, there are lies that the enemy wants you to believe, which keeps you enslaved. Right? Some of you, you haven't made up your mind about Jesus. You're still thinking. You, you need to be delivered from the dominion of sin of your life. There are others of you, you've been believing Jesus for a long time, but there's still struggles in your head. Still ways in which we need to grow. And I know Jesus can deliver you from the dominion of darkness. He can transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, but also some of us have been believing the lies of the enemy that said, you can't get over this. You, you can't get through this. You will never reconcile with so-and-so in your family. It's just not going to happen. Or you are enslaved to alcohol. You're never going to get over this. Or you, you're addicted to pornography. Just get in. And I know somebody who can set you free from all those things. 
and, and his name is Jesus. He's this servant. And the question, does he look like that? Right? Is he the kind of guy who brings justice to victory? Is there victory? There's victory in this servant. What has Jesus done? And the greatest victory, Romans 3, 24 to 26. You have been justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, which was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's justice condemned sin at the cross. God established a rule. Those who sin must die. Death had to happen in order for sin to be atoned for. God didn't just sweep sin under the cosmic rug of the universe and, and overlook it. Death had to happen. Somebody had to die in order for sin to be atoned for. Jesus did. Yet he never sinned. And so, God's justice is maintained because death is, is, is fulfilled, but then life can be given and righteousness granted because Jesus rose from the dead, victorious over death and the grave and the penalty of sin. So God is just in condemning sin on the cross, but he can justify those who are guilty by looking in faith to Jesus. Is he the kind of Savior to whom you're looking? And this is every day of our lives we look to him and we trust in him. And so this leads us to the final point, this idea of hope. Look at, the, look at verse 21, last verse. In the name of the Gentiles, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And it's twice now, Gentiles have been included in this prophecy that Isaiah wrote 700 years ago. Don't think that your salvation was not included in God's mind when he was describing how salvation was going to happen for the Jews because Gentiles are included. And he's in his name, the name of this Savior servant, you will hope, the Gentiles will hope. My question, are you hoping in Jesus? Is, is he this servant, does he look like Jesus? Is he worthy of hoping in not for salvation, yes, only, but also for sanctification, right? To continue to walk in him and to experience his power and his victory and his, his, all that he achieved in his life for you. So I ask you, what should we think about this, this servant and this Jesus that Matthew is presenting before us? Ten reasons why I think you should hope in Jesus. First of all, Isaiah's servant was one chosen and loved by God. Jesus was chosen and loved by God the Father, so much so that he spoke twice from heaven and said as much, his baptism and his transfiguration. Secondly, Isaiah's servant was delighted in by God the Father. Jesus also was spoken of in a favorable way that God is well pleased. God said that twice from heaven about Jesus. Nobody else has he said such things about. Third, Isaiah's servant was anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was anointed at his baptism and the anointing of the Holy Spirit remained on him. And we see that anointing in his powerful teaching, his powerful healing, 
and his powerful ministry of reconciliation, casting out demons and healing every disease and affliction. Fourth, Isaiah's servant was anointed to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles. Jesus was manifestly anointed by God to preach the gospel in divine authority to Jews and to Gentiles. And the Jum Gentiles believed it, right? And we here, many of us have believed it. Fifth, Isaiah's servant, not a public debater. Jesus, in this instance, did not quarrel with the Pharisees. He simply withdrew. Anybody else fulfilled that particular aspect of prophecy? Sixth, Isaiah's servant is not going to proclaim his popularity in the streets. Jesus told those he healed, just be quiet, stay calm. Seven, Isaiah's servant was gentle with bruised people. Jesus also was a gentle leader and a meek person. He said, come to me if you need rest. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Right? Eight, Isaiah's servant would never quench even the weakest of faith. Jesus was persistently patient with doubters and deniers. Nine, Isaiah's servant was to bring justice to victory. Jesus died on the cross vindicating God's justice, condemning the unrepentant proud, but giving grace to the humble who would repent. And tenth, Isaiah's servant was one in whom the Gentiles could hope. And Jesus died to save all who would trust in him. And he said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What do you think? Does Jesus fulfill what was spoken of 700 years before he showed up. Isaiah described God's Messiah. Does Jesus fulfill what Isaiah said? If he does, then would you hope in him? Would you let the foundation of your life be grounded in who Jesus is? Would you let him be the the source of joy for your soul? Would you surrender to that kind of guy? Is he the kind of leader that you would be willing to surrender to? That's the question. So would you trust and hope in his promises to save you? Yes, but also to sanctify you and to sustain you through your life. Won't you come to him today? Will you not ignore this savior, this servant, and this son? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I know of no other person in the history of the world who has fulfilled the description of what God's servant was described to be by Isaiah, except you. And I put my faith completely in you. I trust that your holy life, your atoning death, your victorious resurrection, is available for all who would cry out to you and say, will you forgive me of my sins? And will you sustain my life? Will you pour your spirit into me? Will you set me free? And Lord Jesus, I I trust by your spirit that you are at work in the lives of your people. And Lord, I ask you, by your power, would you set free those listening to my voice who need to set free? Would you grant deliverance from 
enslavement to sin, from entanglement with things that hinder us from pursuing you? Would you deliver us from confusion into a place of clarity? Let us see your glory, Lord Jesus. And Father, I ask, let us trust in your promises. When our faith is weak, let us trust in you. When we don't see how we can go forward, Lord Jesus, I pray, would you come to the rescue? And Lord, let your spirit be at work in our hearts even now as we sing to you and thank you for being the Savior that you are. We trust in your promises. We will found our lives in you. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, save the lost and strengthen those who love you. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen.